Hey, this is Mark. I'm back with another episode of Finding Your Summit. And this week we have Allison Levine. And Allison is another one of these people who is super accomplished. And it was such a fun uh, time for me to get caught up with her. Uh, This is a woman who had to overcome a heart condition. Um, She had way too many valves going into her heart. It took her three surgeries before it finally got fixed uh, over her her life. She has uh, climbed the seven summits. She has skied to the north and the south pole. You combine those two things together and you get the Adventures Grand Slam. So think about that. Um, She's also behind a really cool movie project called The Glass Ceiling, which is all about the first Nepalese woman to climb Mount Everest. And then unfortunately on her way down, she she, uh, fell to her death. She didn't make it, um, but it's just really you know, turned into this big deal it was like Princess Di, she describes it, um, when, uh, Princess Di had, had passed away in a, a tragic car crash. So, um, she is the best-selling author of a, of a book called The Edge. And, uh, she is the number one, uh, speaker, uh, on the public speaking circuit, uh, within the Kepler organization, which is a very, uh, well-known, uh, organization with really big net time names. And she is number one and she, she's number one because she's able to relate to the average person. She didn't, you know, win the Heisman trophy or win a gold medal. Um, but she just did it one step at a time. That's what she really talks about. And she didn't have a grand master plan about climbing all these mountains. She kind of fell into it and, uh, and then just kind of said, you know what, I'm done with corporate America. She worked at Goldman Sachs and decided to take this on full time, got some sponsorships, um, and then started climbing these crazy mountains all over the world. And, uh, actually, uh, had, did Everest once, got turned back, high altitude, crazy weather. Uh, she had all kinds of problems. She had to navigate, uh, get through, did not make it. It wouldn't be until eight years later that she would go back and actually conquer that mountain. So she is a badass, and it was really cool to, again, talk with her. So Alice Levine, Levine is the person on the pod today. And as always, go in, rate, review. And if you want to find out any more info about everything I'm up to, you can check me out, markpattisonnfl.com. And that's where I am. All right. So with that, let's get into the pod. Here's Allison. Bye. Hey, everybody, it's Mark. I'm back with another incredible episode of Finding Your Summit. And this week, I'm so blessed and grateful to have Allison Levine on the pod. She is an amazing soul, a go-getter and an adventurer, a public speaker. There's so many things that we're going to get into. Uh, I am beaming today from Hermosa Beach, California, straight up the coast to Northern California in a secret spot that she's (laughs) hiding out in. Allison, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. Happy to be on the pod. Yes. I love it. I love it. So, um, gosh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about and just, you know, like a a quick setup, um, on your life. Then I kind of want to dig into kind of how you got there. I mean, why you started doing these different adventures and how that got into public speaking for you. But um, so for those that don't know, Allison has done the seven summits and actually something called the Grand Slam, the Adventures Grand Slam, which is skiing to the North and the South Pole. And, you know, there's only X amount of people who've ever actually pulled that off, let alone being a female and wanting to to go go, go down that path. And so, um, I mean, my gosh, did, did you grow up? Let, let's start there. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, balmy Phoenix, Arizona. So as we both know, there's not like huge peaks in balmy Arizona, right? So, um, where did this whole love of climbing, um, where did that kick in? So when I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers and probably because, because growing up in Phoenix and, you know, 122 degree summers, I was just, thought, oh, I'll read about these cold places and maybe I can transport myself there. Um, hang on. I got to take the squeaky toy out of my dog's mouth really quick while we're doing this. Um, and so I would read these books and I'd watch these documentary films and, uh, long story short, but I had my second heart surgery when I turned 30 and about 18 months later, when I got the all clear from my doctor, this light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, you know what, if I want to know what it's like, to be Reinhold Messner and drag a 150 pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice. 
then I should go do it instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers going to all these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to those mountain ranges instead of just watching documentaries about them. And if these other guys can go out there and do this stuff, then, you know, I can get out there and do it too. So that's just kind of how it started. I love that. So let's go back to something, a little, a little detail that you threw in there that um, I want to, I want to understand better. So you talked about going through this heart surgery at 30. I mean, what was going on with you? So I was born with a condition called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which is an extra bypass tract in my heart that was not supposed to be there. Mm. And uh, I had one procedure when I was 17, one when I was 30, and then another one when I was 44. Uh, But the first one was not effective. They were not able to correct the problem. And then, uh, by the time, so that was when I was 17, when I was 30, by then medical technology had advanced to the point where they're getting pretty good at this stuff. So I had my second procedure done at UCSF and it was successful at, um, closing off this bypass tract, but the little did the doctors know, I actually had another, uh, another little hole in my heart that had gone undetected that I had to have fixed when I was 44. So what does that do in terms of, um, I mean, what were the obvious symptoms for you? Was it, was it harder for you to breathe or was your heart Yeah. Racing? So it, well, when I was growing up, I would have like my heart racing and hard to breathe and chest pains. And I would tell my parents, you know, I grew up in this very tough love family where it was, you know, no whining, no complaining allowed. So I would tell my mom, you know, I, I didn't want to whine or complain, but I'm like, I think something's wrong. You know, I just feel like there's this crushing feeling in my chest and my heart's beating really fast and I can't breathe. And she would say, oh, you're just nervous for your piano recital. And I'm like, well, I, I don't think so, mom, because I don't even take piano lessons, right? She'd be like, well, that's why you should be nervous. So um, I, you know, just kind of ignored it. And then when I was 17, I finally lost consciousness from it. And uh, because no blood was getting to my brain, my heart was beating so quickly that it wasn't beating strongly enough to pump blood. So no blood was getting my brain. I was uh, unconscious and they took me, rushed me to the hospital. And that's when the doctor said, um, all right, who's your, your cardiologist back home? Cause I was actually, uh, skiing at a ski resort at the time. And I said, I, I don't have a cardiologist. I'm only 17. And he yeah. said, how can you not have a cardiologist? Like your EKG is completely abnormal. You're, and, uh, I just explained, I never really gone to a doctor <laughs> when I was growing up. Uh, so, uh, I got diagnosed at 17 and, uh, I've got lucky. There've been, you know, a few people that have come to me with stories of loved ones that have died from this condition and, or loved ones that were, um, you know, suffered, uh, permanent brain damage and are, you know, in a wheelchair for life, unable to walk or talk because of the same condition. So I feel lucky that, uh, I was able to, to get it diagnosed and corrected. So I want to tie this back in a second. So where did you start climbing? When did you start climbing? I climbed my first mountain when I was 32. So I'm 51 now. So almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And the reason why I tied that together is because, you know, for those people, so you and I are, are kindred spirit from the standpoint of loving the mountains and being in them and being at high altitude. You've been a little bit higher than I have been, but, um, still as, as, as you know, the higher you go, the less oxygen there is in breathing, you know, really, um, breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth and really regulating that is so key in success or failure in terms of getting to that top. And so, you know, you with this condition, um, it's shortly after then, right? Because you said there's three surgeries, one at 17, maybe 30, and then 45? Uh, yeah, my last one was at 44. 44, okay. And so could you feel the, feel the impact between these surgeries and as you're climbing and advancing your game in terms of your breathing? Well, because I didn't start climbing until after my second heart surgery, I didn't know what it was like to climb before. So I, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, you didn't really, couldn't really compare and contrast to the two situations. Yeah. But yeah. So at any rate, I mean, like, let's just take the mountains out of the picture or skiing to the North Pole out of the picture. I mean, you know, dealing with the heart condition, it's life and death. Right. And today's the, the, the gal that's actually on today's podcast, Emily Farkas, is a cardiothoracic surgeon. So she's used to, you know, this exact thing that you're doing. Yeah. I read about her on your website, yeah, on the pod, she, you know, the podcast section of your website. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. And she goes around all over the world and operates on these kids in third world um, villages that, that, that can't afford it. And, 
you know, it's literally MacGyver of a, a knife and a spoon and, you know, other non-advanced tools where she's going in and actually solving these problems and saving lives. And in your case, I mean, it could have gone either way. Right. Right. So, um, where did you go to college? I went to college. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, went down to Tucson for college to the university of Arizona. Mm-hmm. That's where my daughter goes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Wildcat, yeah. wildcat for life. Yeah. She's a wildcat. Both, both daughters actually. It's well, it's funny. Cause I went to U of A for undergrad, but I went to grad school at Duke. So I have two great basketball schools to cheer for. Oh, that's awesome. And the reason why I bring that up is because this path that you took, you, you ultimately ended up at Goldman Sachs, right? I did. Yeah. And what was that like? Uh, so I went to Goldman after graduate school. So after I finished my MBA and I had no background, I was a liberal arts major at the university of Arizona, had no background in finance or accounting or any quantitative skills. Um, and so I figured if I ever wanted to start a company or become an entrepreneur or something, it would be a good idea to learn some finance and accounting and basic business you know, take some basis, basic business courses. So I went to grad school. And then when I was there, I thought, well, if I want to really stretch myself and learn some skills that are pretty far out of my comfort zone, then I should try to get a job on wall street because as a liberal arts major, uh, you know, with a sales and marketing background, wall street was about the furthest thing uh, from my comfort zone. And so I thought, well, I'll interview with Wall Street firms. And I did. And I ended up uh, getting a job with Goldman Sachs and worked there for three years right after grad school. And where did the, like, it was it in between before, after this whole vision board for you about, you know, this climbing, did it, did it evolve or did you have like the picture, you know, in front of you from day one? How did that work for you? So it really just kind of evolved. I never really had a picture in front of me and I'm sort of more of the live for the moment. And, you know, I like spontaneity. I like improvisation. I'm more into that stuff than I am into long-term planning. So I just kind of, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, I, I quit my job uh, two months before I started grad school. Cause I'd never really taken any vacation. I graduated from college early, went straight into the workforce. And so when I got into grad school, I thought, well, I want to go have some kind of adventure that I've not had before. And I ended up just going by myself to Tanzania and went to Kilimanjaro and hired a local guide at the base of the mountain. And that was the first mountain I ever went to. And even though it's just a trekking peak and it's not technical, you know, and basically anybody with some stamina and some determination can do it. Um, I, I loved the experience and I just felt this sense of empowerment from being in the mountains and realizing that everything you need to get by in life, you can carry on your back, right? A tent, a stove, some freeze-dried food, some warm clothes, sleeping bag, you're good to go. Um, and it was also an important mount for me because while it's not super difficult, it was the fir- my first time at altitude, right? So it's over 19,000 feet. So you feel the altitude. And it was the first time I felt like, oh my gosh, I have a headache. I have a stomach ache. I don't feel good. I need to turn around, but I'm just going to take one more step before I turn around one more step forward. And I would take one more step forward. Okay. Well, um, maybe I could just take one more step forward before I turn around one more step forward. Okay. Wait, maybe now just like one or two more steps before I turn around. And then all of a sudden I found myself at the summit. So for me, it was, um, kind of a life-changing mountain because it taught me that you can always take one more step. And if you can take one more step, then you can take one more step after that. And so every time I feel like, oh my gosh, this is too hard. I can't do this. I need to turn around. I go back to that day, that summit day on Kilimanjaro in 1998. And I thought, I didn't think I could keep going. And I did it then so I can do it now. Yeah, I love that. There's So there's two things that you said in there that I really resonate with. Number one, you know, you can carry these things on your back, right? Really the things that are important. And um, this last year, last February, I was... Uh, uh, fortunate to be invited by um, Chris Long, who plays for the Eagles, and he has a foundation called Water Boys, which is all about raising money to build water wells for the people of the Maasai tribe in the Serengeti. And so uh, we all, bunch of bunch of their six NFL guys and some Green Berets, we all went down, and it was really amazing because you know you go in there and these people have nothing, yet their happiness factor is just literally off the chart. 
right? Right, yeah. And, and, you know, the currency's a goat and they don't have cars and they're out there and it's very traditional where the women are cooking and making their arts and crafts and, and they're they're just incredibly um, happy. And then the other the other uh, point that, that, that you know, I, I certainly connected with you on, on what you said about One Step Forward and I crashed it about on Summit Day uh, my first time um, five years ago um, at about, I don't know, 16,000 feet, got out of the gate and just hadn't really figured out and understood the nutrition game. And I just lost all my energy. And so it was yeah. that thing where I sat down and my, my, my porter was like slapping me in the face and punching me around and shoving a, a protein bar down my mouth. And, <laughs> and yeah, and, and uh, it got me up and it was, is that same thing is just get to that next point to get to the next point and rehydrate and keep going. And, and, you know, I did make it to the top and it was just a, and it was when I was going through a tough time personally, and because of 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 that, it was really um, uh, symbolic in in the way that it, it, it you know if I could do that, I could get through anything. Kind of you know a lot right. of what you're talking about, one step, then one step, then one step. You can keep going. So it's just right. You know, I love that. But gosh, the um, you know the the calorie intake, the food thing, and the energy is so important too. You know, it's hard because people lose their appetite at altitude, so they don't eat enough, and then they bonk. And when I've taken people to the mountains and I'll say, Hey, you know, we're stopping for a break, grab a snack. Oh, I'm not hungry. I don't care. Grab a snack anyway, (laughs) because they think, Oh, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. And then all of a sudden they completely run out of steam. And that happened to me, you know, so it happens to everybody. Yeah. I just had to learn, you know, mountaineering and it's just taken me, it wasn't really till my third um, maybe I was on Elbrus or something where I was really starting to figure it out and, and hydrate and, and have nutrition higher up. And you're right. Exactly what you said. If it is, people just don't understand that the higher you go, your appetite gets suppressed in those. Right. Areas. Right. And, uh, even my, you know, my husband, who's a tough guy, you know, he went to West Point and he was in the army, you know, same thing happened to him. We went to Mount Shasta and he didn't eat, didn't eat, didn't eat. And by the time we got to, you know, the 10,000 foot camp, he was just spent, you know, he literally couldn't go up anymore just from lack of eating. Cause he's a strong guy, but did not take in enough calories. So, okay. So you, you, you go up and you have this, 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 uh, enlightened moment for lack of a better word about one step, one step, and you get to the top of Kilimanjaro. And like me, it's not technical, but it is test your, you know, your altitude and how you do up there. Um, where did you go from there? So now are you, is that, is the like, Hey, I want to, the seven summit thing start to come into view a little bit more. No, not necessarily. It was more like, uh, I started grad school after that and we were on six week terms at Duke and I wanted to go somewhere every time I had a break from, from school. So I, and I didn't have any money because I was living off of student loans, but I had a ton of frequent flyer miles because I had lived and worked in Asia prior to starting grad school. So I figured out every time I had a break from school, I could go to another mountain. I could basically get there for free, you know, and throw everything I needed in a backpack. So I could you know, kind of see the world on every break that I had and do it for free, but I couldn't afford hotels or rental cars or anything like that. So going to the mountains seemed like a good way to travel and have adventure without really having to spend any money. So (laughs) that's kind of how it started. So I actually did Kilimanjaro and then Elbrus right before I started grad school. And then once I was in grad school, uh, went to Karsten's Pyramid, went to Aconcagua, um, did Denali right when I finished up. Uh, and then shortly after when I started the training program for Goldman, um, I got this offer to go to the Vincent Massif in Antarctica. And it was, um, someone that was involved in the logistics company at the time. And so it was a way to get there for in a pretty inexpensive manner, because I think at the time, you know, it was $30,000 or something crazy. I didn't have any money. And yeah. yeah, And, you know, look, I was working at Goldman, but I was a, I was a new associate. We had a five figure income, right. And I'm living in San Francisco, which is an expensive city, uh, on five figures with $70,000 of debt. So you're not living large by any means. So there was no way I could afford to, you know, do that trip the the normal way. So I, it was just an opportunity. I was in the training program and I went to the guy that ran the training program. His name was Peter Grieve. I'll never forget this guy. And I said, look, I have this opportunity. And I thought he said, he would say, 
you, do you know how many people would kill for your job? If you're not focused, you shouldn't be here. You know, some kind of lecture like that. Yeah. And he just said, I totally understand. This is a great opportunity. Um, we're going to let you leave the training program, uh, and, and go do this climb. So, uh, so I got to do that in, uh, in 2000, it was like the end of December, 2000, beginning of 2001. And then, and that was my sixth of the seventh summits and then just had Everest left. What a blessing that you had a guy at Goldman say that to you, right? Because, because to your point, you know, there's, there's, you know, most people would not have that same answer, that response. Right. And they, right. you know, it's such a, that the, the, the American dream, I think at times can be a big lie. Like, you know, you have to do it. This I exact agree. Way. Well, and the other thing is much more common now for people to take these extended vacations and unpaid leaves and do a gap year or whatever, or go on sabbatical. That's very popular now, but this is 17, you know, 16, 17 years ago, people didn't do that. People were just so grateful to have a job. And it was scary to even ask for the time off because I was afraid they would think that I wasn't appreciative of the job or I wasn't dedicated to the job or I wasn't a hard worker or I was not focused. So I was afraid to ask, but I thought, oh my gosh, I might never get another opportunity to go back to this mountain. And especially like, you know, on a five figure income with so much debt and living in such an expensive city. Um, I just thought this is once in a lifetime. And I thought, you know, it was an important, an important lesson. If you don't ask, you won't get, if you don't ask, you're for sure not going to get the opportunity a hundred percent guaranteed. It will not happen for you because you didn't ask. So there is some risk in asking. I realize that, but this guy, yeah, it was at the time, you know, 16 years ago, people weren't saying like, Oh yeah, take a couple weeks off, even though you just started this new job. Uh, but that's basically what they let me do. So I was super appreciative. And of course took like a huge Goldman Sachs banner to the top of the Vincent Massif to say, thank you. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Did, did you ever feel any bias as a woman? Uh, okay. So I'll tell you that when I started climbing, there weren't that many women in the mountains at the time. Yeah. And I definitely felt like, so I think it can work for you and it can work against you. There were definitely like super chivalrous people I ran into that were always offering to help me. How you doing? Check it in. Oh my gosh, this is so hard for me. You're half my size. It must be hard for you. Cause you know, I'm by 412 pounds. So, um, but then there were definitely, I felt like times where people would make little snide remarks or even one time I remember actually, um, in Antarctica and it wasn't someone on my trip, but just another guy, just super drunk, just like literally like trying to pull me onto his lap and make me sit on his lap. And there was not one other woman anywhere in sight anywhere. And of course, like everyone was laughing and thought it was so funny. And I was just, just, you know, literally struggling to get away from this guy, literally pulling myself away thinking this is not funny to me. Uh, but it, you know, nowadays I feel like there's, it's so much more common to see women out on these, you know, on peaks all over the place and women traveling alone. And so it's so much more common now, but back in the day, there were definitely times where it was, you know, it was challenging. No, I appreciate that. So, um, I was just on Denali last May, did not make the top. It was minus 60 up there and, um, you know, valued my life and limb fingers and toes more than, yeah, yeah. as so, you should. So we were stuck at that, uh, 14,000 foot camp, um, did make it up that wall to 16,000, but, uh, never, but the, 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 the question I want to ask you is that I was pulling, I'm almost 200 pounds, right. And I was pulling 126, you know, between my backpack and my, my sled. And you just said you're a hundred and not much. Right. And yeah. I mean, how did you do that? How did, how did you carry that kind of weight? So hard. It's so hard. So I had to put more of it in my sled than in my pack. So yeah. everybody distributes their weight differently based on what feels right to them. And for me, you know, most of the stuff was in the sled. So it was so much easier to pull it. Now that said, uh, when I did my South pole expedition, which was crossing 600 miles of Antarctic ice on skis, it's all sled. You've got 150 pounds in your sled. And I was definitely really, really struggling to keep up with my teammates who are like six, three, 
you know, 220 pounds. And I wrote about that in my book. I have a book called On the Edge. And chapter six is all about that struggle of how does it feel when you trained your ass off, but you are still the slowest weakest person on the team. And how do you find a way to contribute and be valuable when you, when you clearly are not going to be able to, to, uh, keep up with your teammates. So that for me, was a challenge, not just the physical challenge, but the psychological and emotional challenge of feeling like I was holding my team back and being a drag on them. So and how did, how did you, that's come, hard to deal with. How did you come to terms with that? So it's interesting. It was a great learning uh, it was a great sort of leadership learning moment for me because I took a cue from our expedition leader, an Australian named Eric Phillips, who is amazing. And he basically in a very respectful way ended up taking weight out of my sled to make my sled lighter. So basically I overheard Eric talking to one of my teammates, George in their tent. And I heard Eric saying, I feel so bad for Allison. She's really struggling with the weight of her sled. And George said, I know she's so much smaller than everybody. And Eric said, you know what? We should, we should help her out. Let's help her out tomorrow. And George's like, yeah, good idea. The way they handled it was brilliant because Eric got out of the tent and instead of saying, Hey, look, you're clearly slower than everybody. So we're going to take some weight out of your sled so you can keep up. He said, um, hey, you guys, before we start off skiing today, I just want to weigh everybody's sleds and make sure they're all about even. So, George, grab the end of your sled. Let's weigh yours. So they each pick up the end mm. of this humongous, big, you know, fiberglass sled and they weigh it. All right, this one feels good. All right, let's grab my sled. Let's pick weigh that one. All right. Grab the end of Moretta's sled. We'll weigh that sled. That one feels good. All right. Grab the end of Allison's sled. Let's weigh that one. And they each pick up the end of this massive sled. They pick it up, you know, three inches off the ground. They both drop it simultaneously and start clutching their backs going, Oh my God, like what's in this sled? (laughs) This is crazy. You, your sled, it's so much heavier than everybody else's. We got to make this a little more even George, you take her fuel canister. I'm going to take her food bag. And they're now offloading weight from my sled. And I knew what they were doing because I overheard them. And I knew my sled was not any heavier than anybody else's, but the way Eric handled that really allowed me to keep my pride intact and sent me a strong message that I was an important, valued member of the team. And I'll never forget the way they did that. But of course, then now I'm thinking, I need to pay these guys back, right? I What am I going to do to make up for the fact that they are carrying more weight than they should be carrying? And so what I noticed, you know, I just went into observation mode. Okay, what can I do? What can I do to sort of, you know, be a valuable member? And I noticed these big, tall guys, when they would try to shovel snow. So the end of the day, you have to shovel snow around your tent to build a barricade to protect it from the elements. And what I noticed was these taller guys were wrenching their backs using this very short snow shovel, trying to make the snow barricade. So of course I'm shorter to the ground at five, four, so I can use a snow shovel without wrenching my back. So that next night I said to them, Hey, you guys, can I uh, shovel the snow around the tent. I'll, I'll make the barricade for you. And Eric said, you want to do what? And I said, I, I want to shovel the snow around your tent. And he said, why would you want to do that? And I said, because I love to shovel snow. And he said, okay, come on. You love to shovel snow. And I said, yes, I am from Phoenix. And we never got to do that when I was a kid. So it's really a treat for me. So I became the person that shoveled the snow barricade. So I found a way to contribute to my team. Um, I found a way that one of my weaknesses, right, being small and short, actually ended up to be a strength. And it was such an important lesson because I learned that as leaders, we need to help the weaker people on our team overcome their weakness, not compensate, or sorry, not overcome it, but compensate for it. Cause there are some weaknesses that people will never overcome. I was never going to overcome my size and my weight, but I could compensate for it. And so for me, it was just a great lesson in, you know, as leaders, we need to help people find their sweet spot and make sure that they feel like they're a valuable contributor to the team. And if you can do that for someone who's a weaker performer, you will often get a higher level of performance and value out of them than you would have gotten out of them if they had been an on par performer with everybody else to begin with. Yeah. I I love that. So essentially what you're talking about here is there's no I in team. And I think one of the things that people don't understand. So I I think from a corporate, um, 
uh, leadership standpoint, um, what you said makes total sense. I think what people don't understand, though, is in the world of mountain climbing, that becomes such a, a, a valuable key that, you know, people are tethered together on ropes and people, you know, you have to work in tandem in unison to, you know, pull, put up the tents and, and, and cook and, and, uh, uh, pull your weight, you know, just, and some are stronger than others in, in different areas. And so, so the, what you were talking about compensating in other way, ways is so important to the success and the eventual outcome um, of the team. Yeah. And I think for everybody's sort of mental well being, if you see someone that's a, you know, a weaker member, it's so easy to be like, oh shit, you know, we're sorry, but like, we're like we, this person, this person, it's, I wish this person weren't on our team because they're slowing us down. And then everybody gets down about that. But instead you just have to look at that person and take it upon yourself to think, what am I going to do to make this person a better performer? Instead of just looking at that person and thinking, oh, they're terrible. I wish they weren't part of this team. Yeah. We, we dealt with that on, on Denali. There was a guy that wouldn't do, you know, all the things of compensating, you know, between we had to carry all his stuff. Um, he quit on that 2000 foot face going up on the fixed lines on Denali. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, building walls there, as you know, you have to build these, you know, three foot, four foot, uh, walls around your tent, uh, to protect you from the wind, the elements. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't dig, he wouldn't help. I mean, so it was just one th- yeah, it was one of those things where it just, you know, and, and, and as you know, you get stressed and so your patience gets very limited. And it, it's hard to say that, hey, how can I help? And even the, the, the team leaders were like, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And we were willing to do other things for him. But, you know, he was not even willing to do those things for himself. That's so that's what the difference is, is like for me, I wanted I, I so wanted to contribute. And I so wished that I could be out in front, the strongest, fastest person that was helping everybody. But I the law of physics basically dictates that someone that my, you know, my size can't do that. So, but that's the difference is there has, the motivation has to be there. Right. So you're talking about somebody that is not at all motivated to be a team player and to, to help the team. And that's a much more difficult situation to deal with. It's funny. I had someone like that on my Denali trip too, would just do her thing. And when she was done, she would just sit down while the rest of us were busting our asses to like, break down camp. And, you know, as soon as she had her backpack packed, she would just sit there. I'm like, Hey, could we get a hand and breaking down these tents that you just slept in? (laughs) So to me, it's amazing that you have to remind people of that because when they're sitting there watching everybody work, I'm thinking, how does it not occur to you to get off your ass and help everybody? Yeah. You know, Jim Collins has got this book called good to great. And he talks about, you know, if you don't have everybody on the bus, you need to get that person off the bus. And of course, when you're at high altitude and you're just figuring these things out, you just can't kick people off the bus. Right. But, you know, you're just really hoping that in future endeavors that you do like that, you are with the right team members that really understand this whole uh, teamwork concept question for you. And this is, this is an ignorant question on my end. So excuse me in, in, in advance of, of this question, but did you run into any polar bears out there? No, we did not. Yeah. So we're talking about the, the South pole or the North Wood pole. Well, that was South pole, but they're North. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, People. Yeah. We had, um, I did North pole as well. And we had, uh, loaded guns with us, not to shoot a bear, but to shoot into the air to, to scare them if need be. But we didn't run into any. Yeah. I hear those guys like to hunt you down. I mean, they are. Yeah. Scary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not like trooper. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He's like a hundred, hundred pound slobbery lab and he's the sweetest thing. So let's talk about Everest. Yeah. All right. So I think you, 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 it took you two tries to get to the top of Everest. What, what, Correct. What, tell me what happened on that first Everest trip. Weather. And how high up did you get? 28,750. So you're like literally hundreds of yards away from the top. And yes, less than the length of a football field to put it in your perspective. Yep. Thank you. And how long, if you would have just, you know, climbed at your pace, to climb the length of, of a football field at that altitude, how long does that take to do? Well, the thing is, we still had the Hillary step in front of us. Um, so even though, you know, 200, 
you know, 75 feet feels like it's doable, you know, like you could just like run and touch the top and run back down. But that would take us several hours because of the obstacles that were in front of us. And because at that elevation, as you know, you're taking, you know, multiple breaths for every step at times. What did that, what were you going through? I mean, like, so you're processing and, and I, you know, you're competitive, obviously, um, you want to go, but you're also, you're, you're thinking about your life. I mean, how were you processing that? Well, what made it more difficult was the fact that we were the first American women's Everest expedition. We had this big sponsor in Ford. We had 450 media outlets following our climb. You know, CNN's doing live updates from the mountain and you just feel so much pressure to succeed because of all of that, you know, media attention. So it's hard, but what you have to remember is that the summit is never the goal. The summit is the halfway point only right? That's it. It's only halfway. You have to be able to get yourself to the summit and back down. So whether you're dealing with, um, you know, low energy levels or, you know, you're cold, you're becoming hypothermic or you're dealing with weather, you can't think, well, you know, is the weather good? Will the weather hold long enough for me to get to the top? You have to think, will the weather hold long enough for me to get to the top and back down? So, you know, as you know, it's always important and it's always best to err on the side of being conservative because any mountain is just a pile of rock and ice and you can always go back. But if you do something dumb up there, you know, you may not have the opportunity to go back. How were you feeling at that point, despite the storm? Um, well, I had all kinds of problems with my oxygen tank, so I don't even remember all that well, like exactly how I was feeling, just thinking, you know, what's going, like my tank had malfunctioned. So I wasn't, I had been climbing for 45 minutes up in the depth zone with no oxygen. And mm. I know, you know, I think 1% or less than 1% of climbers summit Everest without oxygen, but they, they've been without oxygen the whole time. So when you've been using it, you know, from the high camp up or from camp three up you, and then all of a sudden you don't have it. It really takes a toll on your body. So, uh, having an oxygen tank malfunction was no fun. (laughs) I would not recommend that. Uh, but I just remember feeling very relieved when we were going down because I knew that we were going to make it back down to the high camp at the South call. Like I was really confident we were going to make it. And that was all I was thinking about was just getting down safely. Yeah. So how many years later did you go back to Everest to eight years later? Wow. So was that, was that eating at you the entire time during those eight years? Not at all. It really wasn't at all. Was that still part of your goal at the time? Um, no, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like it was something that was hanging over my head by any means. So let's talk about then eight years later. So now you're on the mountain, you're going up and you get to camp four. So now you're what, at 26,000 plus up there? Right. And, uh, how was the weather? Uh, not good. (laughs) So you're reminiscing eight years before, like, Okay. I've seen this movie. Yeah. And I write a lot about it in my book, actually about, um, you know, how, what that summit day was like. Yeah. Just, just crazy. So, but you did persevere and you get, you got to the top and you touched it. So that was your seventh, right? Yeah. And was it a glorious moment? Did you stay up there for a while or did you descend immediately or what did you do? Um, yeah, we were up there, but for about 30 minutes. Yeah. And then, um, when you came down, could you see, was it, was it clear that way or is it, were you above the the storm or? No, we had no, um, we had no blue skies. We had no clarity at all the whole time. Wow. Wow. So, uh, you know, I've seen pictures of people up there, which is, you can see, you know, literally to the end of the earth. Um, and I've seen other, no, we were in a total, we were in a whiteout. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it was for me in Alberta in Russia. I mean, it was 10 feet in front of you and that was it. That was it. So couldn't see all the beautiful mountains that, that were out there that we'd seen the days before. So, yeah, uh, well, that's amazing. Okay. So did, did you, in terms of the adventures, uh, grand slam doing the North and the South pole and the seven summits, um, uh, did you do the skiing to the North and South pole after you did Everest or was that kind of sandwiched in between those eight years? I did not. It was before that. Yeah. Cool. So you had all these things. I mean, how many people in the world do you think have, have actually completed that? Oh that gosh, journey? probably a couple dozen I'm yeah. guessing by now. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, yeah. I think when I did it in 2010, um, I think there were like less than 20 or something or 12 people maybe. 
Um, but now I think there's a couple dozen. That's so awesome. I mean, it's just, it, it's really amazing. I talked to a guy, I mean, how about this? There was a guy named Colin O'Brady who I talked to on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he did the Grand Slam, uh, everything that you did in 139 days and became, set the world record of running up and down these, these mountains. I mean, it's just, you know, incredible. I think it would be so much easier to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot right. Of Cause you're totally acclimatized. You can clearly like afford to not work for that long. Uh, you know, for the real you know, us common folk that have to have jobs and, uh, you know, to pay the rent, it's so much, it's so much harder, but if you can just do it straight through God, I mean, you're totally acclimatized. You're in the element the whole time. You don't have other distractions. You don't have to worry about anything else. I think it would be, um, just so much easier to do it straight through. Yeah, no, uh, I would love to do that. You know, my, uh, the, and the thing that's cool about that is that the, the, the Guinness book of world record does not start until you touch the top of your first mountain or your destination, like the North pole, yeah. North pole right? So that's yeah. he went about it. Um, okay. I want to switch gears here for just a second. And I want to talk about the glass ceiling. And I saw that preview last night and I was really moved by it. And, um, I know it's an Indiegogo project that you're up to that you're behind. Can you tell me more about that project? Yeah. So we're actually going to launch the Indiegogo campaign next month for this film. So it's called The Glass Ceiling. So I just think it's so important in life to honor the people who have paved the way before you, right? And who have done really hard things that allow other people to, you know, achieve goals. And so for me, one of my heroes was a woman named Pasang Lamu Sherpa, who was the first female Sherpa to climb Mount Everest. So I know a lot of people may think that Sherpa is a job of carrying things up the mountain, but Sherpa is actually an ethnicity. The Sherpas are an ethnic group. So there are Sherpas that are doctors and lawyers and accountants and things like that. So, um, Pasang Lamu Sherpa was a female Sherpa that grew up in Nepal and she had this dream to climb Everest because she saw all these men in her village climbing the mountain and working on the mountain as, you know, mountain guides and porters. And so she wanted to do the same thing, but Nepal would not let Sherpa women on the mountain. They would only let the men. So this one was dirt poor, couldn't read, couldn't write, had no education, yet had the courage to fight the government of Nepal for Sherpas, you know, female Sherpas rights to climb that mountain. And her argument was basically, look, you've let women from 16 other countries come here and climb the mountain that's in our backyard, yet you will not let local women climb, which made no sense. So she tried uh, three times unsuccessfully thwarted by bad weather or climbing politics. One time she got all the way to the high camp um, and the expedition leader, who was a guy from France, uh, wouldn't let her try for the summit. He basically said, she was just a housewife. She was never going to make it. We didn't want to waste our supplies and our oxygen supplies on her because she's just a housewife. Um, so she was just furious by that. And, um, when she came down, she realized the only way she was really going to have a shot was to organize her own expedition. So she organized the first Nepali Everest expedition. She finally summited on her fourth attempt in 1993, becoming the first female Sherpa and the first Nepali woman to summit but she died on the descent. So she did not live to see her legacy and she left three small children behind. So everyone in Nepal knows about Pasang. Her funeral was like Princess Diana's funeral. The whole country's out in the streets, sobbing, carrying posters of her because she'd become this person that the whole country sort of put their faith in to, you know, put the country on the map. And uh, so she's got a museum named after her and a street named after her. She's on a postage stamp in Nepal, but people outside of Nepal don't know her story. And I think it's such an important story to tell because it just shows you that no matter your race, gender, socioeconomic background, level of education, anybody can be an architect of change. You can change your country. You can change the world if you just have courage and determination that's all that's all it took for her to really make those changes and break through that glass ceiling for women in Nepal. So if you want to learn more about the film, you can go to our website. It's theglassceilingmovie.com. And there's a little um, email sign up if you're interested in helping us spread the word for our Indiegogo campaign. Just um, put your email in there. We'll send you an email about it. We'd uh, really appreciate any help that anyone can give us. I know not everyone can afford to contribute, um, but everyone can help by just forwarding and sharing on social media. 
Yeah, I love that. We'll put that in the uh, the show notes as well. So, is the oh, idea is the idea then? Uh, what I saw was a you know two three minute clip of kind of the you know what this thing is about the trailer. And that now what you have to do is this this money is going to help you actually produce a film. Is that right? Yeah. So we have to raise all the money for the post production costs. So this film actually costs a few hundred thousand dollars for post production. So we've got to acquire all the you know, high altitude aerial footage and the color correction, the editing and the sound. We've got a, um, like a award-winning composer who's going to do an original score for the film. And part of what's been challenging is that you can imagine the types of video cameras that Sherpas had back in the early Mm nineties. They were not good. So the quality is so poor. So we're going to have to license a lot of footage and also try to like spruce up the old archival footage that we have and make it usable for this. And that really takes a lot of, uh, artistic work to, to work on that old archival footage, to make it something that's sort of acceptable for, for film standards today. So that's why we need to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from this campaign. Yeah. The trailer is awesome. So, um, I would really encourage anybody to, to actually go see this, uh, the trailer and uh, fund this if you can, the glass ceiling movie.com. So uh, last question. How do, you yeah. get, how do you get on 60 minutes? <laughs> you, you are a rock star. I'm like, what? And, you know, I checked it out and, you know, it's just like, I would freak out if they, somebody pounded on my front door and there's a camera and they go, hi, this is 60 minutes. Ah, you know, I don't like, what did I do wrong? Yeah, like, what you're, are you, well, you're what kind of sacks, right? So the muscles, right? well, no, that was, yeah, that was years I, I know, before that. that. Oh, it's so funny. Speaking of that, some, I got a random, um, email from somebody, um, I remember cause I was training forever. So I was in Colorado and some random person was like, Hey, like, um, how do you feel? It's like after the uh, real estate market crash, they're like, how do you feel having worked for a company that helped like ruin this country? And um, while, while you pocketed millions of dollars in the meantime, and I was like, millions of dollars? Like I'm laughing. I'm like, I had a five-figure un- income. I'm like, uh, try lloyd.blankfine at gs.com. Like the CEO. I'm like, because clearly like I had a five-figure income. I did not pocket millions. And I haven't worked there since 2003. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's... Uh, you know, people just hear the story and relate the story. And I think a lot of it is, you know, what they're looking for at the time. But I was nervous at first. I was like, Oh, what is this story going (laughs) to, what is this story going to be about? No, no, you're great. Um, and I also want to, I want to pump, um, and this kind of feeds into, to some of the things on that 60 minute piece is that, uh, for people who have not heard of you, Alison Levine, uh, Which would be ninety nine point nine percent of the country no, and your listeners. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> totally cool. But this is all about exposure, right? And I, I, I just want everybody to know that you're one of the top motivational speakers um, in the country, and you just have such a great message about leadership, about overcoming things, about pursuit of your dream, about not giving up, about teamwork, about a lot of these different things that you're that you've done. You know, you've accomplished you know firsthand. So you're not reporting about somebody else. You actually are the doer. And then you're talking about all this stuff, right? Well, I think the reason, and it's crazy because I'm represented by one of the largest speakers bureau in the country and they represent a lot of like big famous names, uh, that, that people have heard of. And for whatever reason, I've been their most frequently booked speaker for six straight years or maybe seven now, but I think it's because I am just a normal person. Like I didn't, you know, I'm just like a normal girl that grew up in Arizona. I didn't have any special anything in my, you know, that like, I didn't like train since I was four years old at the Olympic village, or I didn't, you know, I'm just like a normal person. I'm not, I'm small. I'm not incredibly athletic. I am just a normal person. And I think that's why I get booked so frequently is because I can relate to audiences and they can relate to me versus when you see some amazing Olympian for me, I look at them and I'm like, Oh my God, that person is amazing. But I could never do that because this person trained as an Olympian from the time they were eight years old and their parents moved them to the Olympic village. And they spent, you know, eight hours a day, every day for however many years to perfect their skills. And that's just not me. Like I'm just a normal person with a dog that just normal things, you know? And so I think people can relate to that more easily. Cause I remember sitting there going, well, good for you. You're amazing. But 
I want to hang myself in my cube every day. And what do you know about what it's like to be me? So when I speak, I think the reason my talks resonate is because I just think about the audience, right? It's, I think about, it's about the audience. It's not about me. And what am I going to tell these people in the next 45 minutes to an hour that's going to make them walk out of this room and say, there's nowhere else I would have rather been in the past hour than listening to Allison. So I try to think, what am I going to do to make that happen? And just remembering it's all about the audience. It's not about you. And I think that's, uh, that's why I end up, you know, getting booked as often as I do. Well, you certainly have a gift and I'm so grateful that you were able to share that with us today. Where can people find you? Uh, okay. So my website's alisonlevine.com. It's really old and it's kind of crappy, but I'm redoing it soon. And then I'm on social media on uh, Twitter and Instagram as Levine underscore Allison. If you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. You can also email me through my website. If you do that, your email will come straight to me, not to my assistant, just because I don't have one. Um, see, that's how normally I am. Like, I don't even have an assistant. <laughs> it's just me. Um, and I, I promise you I'll answer any questions that you have. Awesome. That makes two of us. I don't have an assistant. I am the, <laughs> right? the CEO of everything, right? Me so, too. Me too. <laughs> no, it's, it works best that way. You know, you have uh, touch points at, at all phases of the game and you really understand it. So, hey, listen, Allison, thank you so much for being on this pod and you just enriched my life and I know you're going to enrich others and um, you just have awesome things, great messages and uh, we look forward to seeing your adventures uh, into the future, okay? Thanks and good luck to you on your future climbs and thank you so much for having me as a guest on your podcast. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Hey, this is Mark and thank you so much for tuning in to the podcast this week. We had another great guest, and it is so awesome to continually have these different people on, talk about their different adversity, how they've overcome that, um, and what they've done to affect change in their life to become very successful. So, you know, really appreciate you guys uh, tuning in. So, uh, as always, we love the rating and reviews that you guys do on iTunes. If you haven't done that, please go do that. It really helps us in terms of uh, increasing our visibility within uh, Apple iTunes. And um, anyways, it's just fun to share the love and uh, what these different stories, these different people are, are all about. So make sure you tune in next week. We appreciate it. And that's it. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.